0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Hello, welcome to The Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Huff. With lamb prices dropping, so too has the number of lambs sold, more than a million, according to the Meat and Livestock Australia, and there are a few things behind that.
3: There's a really strong correlation between fewer lambs sold and um, weather impact. Other things could be long harvest periods and some processor availability, but only 6% was attributed to that.
2: I'll explain more on what's driven this downturn in the number of lambs sold. Also, every five years or so, politicians in the United States pass a massive piece of legislation called the Farm Bill. I'll have more on some of what... The far-reaching consequences of that bill could be. That's coming up in the next 10 minutes or so. But we'll talk about super now because it's remarkable how much these changes to possible changes to superannuation could affect farming. A new term has been introduced into financial circles and it's got farmers worried and that is unrealised gains. The concept has come up as part of the federal government's plan to double the tax rate on the nation's largest super accounts from 15 to 30%. Labor says it'll affect about 80,000 people who have more than $3 million in their super fund. But as David Cotton Corton reports, this includes a lot of people in the farming community and it's got them and the federal position quite hot under the collar.
4: This taxation of unrealised gains is something that never occurs within our Tax Act and... It's going to affect far more than the very small number of people the government indicated. They said 80,000. Many, many more.
1: That's Susan Lee, Deputy Leader of the Federal Opposition. She says Labor's policy on superannuation is shambolic.
4: A lot of farms and small businesses hold their assets in self-managed super funds and run their businesses through self-managed super funds. And in terms of holding assets... The suggestion that you would be taxed on unrealised gains in those assets on the way through before you actually sell them is impossible and it's not an approach that has ever been taken to taxation law in this country before and nobody has any clarity and all we are being told is we'll work out the detail later on.
1: Tony Mayer from the National Farmers Federation is also scathing about the policy.
5: What the Treasurer has done is is demonstrate perhaps a couple of things that he doesn't necessarily care about agriculture or he doesn't understand agriculture, and that's pretty disappointing.
1: $3 million sounds like a lot of money to the average punter. But farmers don't get super contributions from employers. They have to build up their own. And Tony Mayer says self-managed super funds are the way they do it.
5: Assets like uh the property and and other assets that the business might have uh, can be put into superannuation to make sure that the employees of that farm if that in that in, if it is the owners in that case they're not necessarily um paying themselves superannuation like a government employee or or a corporate employee so this the farm goes into a superannuation account and it does have to build up over long periods of time. So it does take, you know, many years for that asset to appreciate, and that could be the the lump sum of the superannuation package for for that business. Now, um, when... The succession planning situation comes around if it's you know parents leaving the farm and their children taking over it gets really complex around how that asset can be divided up from a superannuation perspective and what it might do in this worst case scenario is you know damp investment uh, hold back uh, succession planning we know we've got an aging population in You know, we actually need to work through, and it can't just be a a blanket statement that, you know, because you've got more than $3 million in assets, and it does sound like a lot to, you know, if you're you're living in urban Australia and you've got $3 million in the superannuation account, a lot of people would say, well, that's quite nice. I wish I had $3 million in my superannuation account. But when you look at it from a farm business asset point of view, uh, you know, you'd be be struggling to get uh, a moderate, decent-sized farm for $3 million these days.
1: Julie Scofield from rural financial services firm Boyce says the proposed changes to superannuation are a massive issue for her clients. And while most of the publicity has been around the $3 million cap, she told Cara Jeffrey the biggest issue is the new tax on unrealised assets. Here's how she defines that.
6: The difference between uh, the purchase cost and what the market value is at the time. And so... Um, people may have purchased property, whether it's farms or commercial property or residential property, within the super fund and if they've experienced a um, valuation because uh, property needs to be revalued quite frequently when held within a super fund. So that's what we talk about, the unrealised gain.
1: And it's not just the farm that could be taxed under this proposal.
6: Listed equities as well. So any assets that have gone up in value in a super fund environment. But it's really, really important to note that it's for people with balances greater than three million dollars.
7: Before these proposed changes would come in, is there any way that people can put it into farm management deposit schemes or anything else that you can do and get it out? Uh, of you?
6: You, my biggest recommendation to everyone is to wait. Let's get through the um, state election and also the federal budget in May, and they, that hopefully will provide more detail um, around what the changes will be and um, and let the lobbying happen um, as well because that will have a big impact upon the final outcome.
1: There's a school of thought that taxing unrealised capital gains on land might help reduce housing market inflation and budget deficits. But it could be farming families as well as Australia's rich who could be paying the highest price if the policy gets through the Parliament.
2: That report from David Clawton, Cara Jeffrey, and Christy Reading. Now, are you concerned by this prospect of the doubling of the tax on super and uh, this concept of unrealised gains or assets and uh, how it could affect you—I'd be interested to know. Um, the advice there was just sit tight and see how this uh, goes. But if this is affecting you or something that you'd like to see more detail on, call and uh, or text me. Call me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. So that's text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Uh, I'd be interested to know because it sounds like it could have far-reaching consequences. The, uh, the, some of the nuances of this uh, doubling of the uh, tax on super accounts with more than $3 million in them, and uh, it'd be good to hear from you. But looking further afield out of Australia, every five years or so, politicians in the United States pass a massive piece of legislation called the Farm Bill. It's $400 billion worth of programs that cover everything from conservation, rural development, energy, research, insurance, subsidies, the list goes on, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says he wants a farm bill for the many and the most. Sounds a bit intriguing and vague. Clint Jasper asked University of Illinois ag policy expert Jonathan Coppas how he's interpreting that statement.
8: Yeah, I think a couple of things. I mean, I I don't want to, you know... uh interpret over interpret the secretary's words but I think a couple things that jump out in that phrasing we have an aging farm population we've seen a lot of consolidation both in the farm ownership and the farm sector all the way up through different parts of the supply chain and so I think he has talked a lot about um, getting new farmers beginning farmers new entrepreneurs in the system whether that be you know somebody who's going to start a community supported agriculture farming operation that provides vegetables to the local, as you know, local farmers market opportunities uh, to getting a new generation of corn and soybean and wheat farmers and 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 in and operating and access to land. they've also been quite innovative in trying to uh, to kind of help jumpstart you know um, entrepreneurship and things like the fertilizer industry and things like meat processing and the livestock side of things. so I think he's kind of covering a lot of that. Our rural communities have been really hollowed out for many years and so, it, thinking of ways for new business entrepreneurs in rural America and helping uh, connect them with agriculture and the agriculture opportunities.
9: In a recent press conference, Secretary Vizak said last year in the U.S., farm incomes were at record highs on the books, but nearly 90 percent of farmers were either not making money or not making the majority of the money they have from farming. So is this another area that either he wants to address or that the farm bill should prioritize? Does it say there's something structurally going wrong in U.S. farming?
8: I think probably a lot of the concern we've seen is, is in that mid-range and in those kind of family-sized farms or or maybe one or two, you know, a couple brothers or, or uh, the dad and an uncle kind of thing that farm together. That have really, you know, had tough goings, and unfortunately, I think a lot of our policies over the years have kind of drifted to be more beneficial to the larger operations, and have also kind of contributed to some of that those challenges. And then there's been a lot of interest around the climate change set of issues, whether it's resiliency at the farm level, whether it's trying to help with regenerative agriculture, or whether it's trying to do, uh, you know, jumpstart you know, greenhouse gas sequestration and storage type markets. And again, you need the innovators. And a lot of times the innovators are are in that middle range who are, you know, uh, have to get creative on how they, how they operate their farms.
9: Just on climate change, um, the whole world is coming out of a rare third or fourth La Nina, depending on who you ask. In the US, that produced some really dry conditions. So will that factor into the size of um, either those subsidies or some of the crop insurance programs, given that kind of the conditions that they're set up for have just played out? Well,
8: I think with our crop insurance program, which is probably our most important part of our farm uh, safety net and support system, I think there's a lot of concern with how drought's playing out over time and how climate change is going to impact that going forward. You know, a lot of that program operates, you know, based on losses and, and subsidy or, uh, premiums and, and those sorts of things. So Congress typically... Make some adjustments or tries to expand coverage but doesn't make major changes in it.
9: Just finally, Jonathan, what kind of timeline is the Farm Bill on at the moment in terms of, (laughs) you know, is there, does it have to be completed by a certain date or will these negotiations roll on? (laughs) (laughs)
8: That's like, that's kind of the great, uh, you know, gambling question at the moment. (laughs) How long would it take to do it? Technically, they're supposed to get many of these things reauthorized by the end of September of this year or the end of this calendar year kind of depending on the program at the rate we're going with some of the challenges we have in front of us, uh, politically and, and in Congress, you know, it's hard to imagine them getting it done by any specific deadline. So we're probably looking at at least an extension of, for some period of time and them having, you know, Congress having to get, get things worked out. So, you know, ideally we'd see it done by September, but I, I don't know that that's, uh, <laughs> That's reasonable to expect uh, in the you current wouldn't bet on environment it. or the
2: calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was Clint Jasper speaking with the Associate Professor at University of Illinois, Jonathan Coppice. There it's 17 minutes past 12.
1: You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Now, you might have noticed a bit of a downturn in the price of lamb in the last six months, perhaps a year or so. It's resulted in About 50% of uh, producers selling less lambs than they expected to six months ago. That's at least according to the latest data from sheep and wool producers, uh, the sheep producer Intentions Pulse Survey. Our MLA market information analyst Jenny Lim says floods and weather hampered lamb selling in the final months of 2022, but producers are planning to make up this shortfall in the first half of 2023. If that's you, if you're planning to perhaps sell some more lambs in the first half of this year, text me 0467 891 or phone 1300 222 891. Ms Lim says, so when taking into account of the lamb flock sizes, the analysis indicates that uh, the 2022 Lamb sales were closer to 8.75 million than the planned 11.84 million, so quite a big drop there.
3: We've seen actually um, a 50% decrease in lambs sold, and and this is from the expected sales from the October wave um, that we reported on last year. And a lot of this nationally is due to weather impacts on lamb performance. And what about in Victoria specifically? There's a really strong correlation between fewer lambs sold and um, weather impact. Other things uh, could be uh, long harvest periods and and some processor availability, but only 6% was attributed to that.
10: When taking into account the size of lamb flocks, what are we looking at here as far as what actually has been sold over the past few months?
3: So we had a, um, an estimated flock size come out of the October wave and this 56% less sold in Victoria actually equates to 1 million lands less sold than expected from the October wave. And that is to June 2022 to December um, 31st. And do the national numbers reflect that? Yeah, they do. We've seen a lot less um, lambs come through than we expected. And um, this is actually followed through to the following year. So we actually are expecting a um, 55% increase in the first half of 2023 to be sold um, as those lambs do come to wait and have to be sold.
10: And when we speak about weather, there's obviously an impact on the actual uh, production of lambs and how they're growing. But farmers were also facing things like flooding and having to protect their properties potentially, harvest delays. Are all these things also distractions from the lamb sales?
3: Yeah, so one of the questions we asked in this um, wave is why they um, had a decline in lamb sales. Majority of it, 43% of it, was attributed to weather and the lamb performance of the year. Um, another 25% was attributed to um, prices and, and not being strong enough or, or as strong as they expected. And then another 13% was attributed to less lambs than expected um, when we surveyed them in October. Other things such as harvest operations, um, lambs not making weight, which could be attributed to weather as well and retaining lambs for the 2023 period because they expect it to be a stronger outlook um, were reasons that were given as to less lamb sales uh, at the end of last year.
10: So you did, you did mention 2023 there. What are the estimates for the next few months of selling?
3: In Victoria specifically, 61% expect to sell more in um, between January and June um, than what we saw, what what they expected in October um, in Victoria. And that equates to 4.2 million lambs, which is up on the October estimate in Victoria, which was originally 2.4 million lambs. So we're seeing a huge increase, nearly 2 million lambs um, expected in the first half of this year.
10: And what about the rest of the country? So nationally, um,
3: October estimates are up. 3.27 million um, lambs and that's expected from the October um, survey. So what we're seeing is a total of 13.44 million lambs in the first half of 2023 nationally.
10: And what do you predict price-wise? We've just been hearing about a fall in prices on the market at the moment. So are farmers now rushing to sell their lambs at this price or should they hold out?
3: I think um, supplies definitely plays a key um, uh, is a key component of pricing pressures. We saw in um, the survey that nine percent actually sold more. Or, or 13% sold more and 9% of that was attributed to downsizing due to forecast prices. So we are seeing some um, people or some producers um, selling off because of what they expect prices to do. In terms of what will actually happen and, and producer intentions will really did, um, be determined by the conditions and, and how producers are feeling about the market.
10: 55% of surveyed producers were actually expecting to sell more lambs in the first half of this year. What can you tell us about that?
3: I think um, it's clear that across um, the whole uh, nation—WA, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, New South Wales—we saw a huge, um, you know, increase in expected sales in the first half of the year, and that's also across all farm sizes. So I think it's a clear indication that, you know, even though we've had, you know, big lamb yardings at the end of last year, we can expect a lot more lamb y- yardings in the next um, six months for sure.
2: Hopefully, Meat and Livestock Australia's market information analyst Jenny Lim speaking there with Jane McNaughton. Uh, One reason why you don't want to have less lambs is mortality. So a Mallee sheep farmer wants his peers to get involved in a program from Meat and Livestock Australia as well to improve lamb survival. David Smith from Geranium tells Eliza Berlage about the Towards 90 initiative.
11: Yeah, we're looking at uh, starting a group of uh, towards ninety, which is like generating more lambs to sell. Um, we've got a f- sort of a focus farm that we're hoping to get up and running, and you need about five farmers or nine farmers to join in with that group. And there's there's things like uh, um, pregnancy scanning and you know lambing preparation, weaning management. Sort of a it's an extension of lifetime year management, but it it uh, it. Um, goes into more depth and you, you do it on a focus farm so you actually do it in real life and and touch the animals and see, see what have a control group and just see how the uh, better management works in reality.
10: And what would I guess the success of, of this group look like?
11: Yeah well it's towards 90 and so that's what it's called you can look it up on a website anywhere and um, it's a uh, Trying to get 90% of your scanned lambs on the ground, so yeah, it's just just trying to do the little things that get higher lamb percentages basically, and all through to through to weaning, yeah, and beyond.
10: The take-up and prevalence of, of scanning, yeah, how widespread is that, and I guess you know how important of a practice can it be?
11: Well, I actually think it's very important. Uh, my son actually does it as a job, but uh, the way you do it. Uh, improve. Well, you can get rid of your dry straight away if you want to, and the other thing is just manage the, your sheep differently by doing the twins and the singles, running them as a, as different groups, and then lambing them down in small groups of the twins, and don't worry about the singles. Just uh, leave them normal and uh, just make sure you have the right feed mix for the the twins to get them up to the uh, so so that they have keep most of their lambs, and that's where you you pick up big gains
10: how can people get involved with it?
11: Um, Well all we have to do is ring up Towards 90 which is uh, it's based out of Hamilton, Victoria but they were trying to get into South Australia and um, yeah they're keen to get it up and running so phone number's 03 if you want to get onto that or just look it up on the website Towards 90 and just register your interest and they'll, they'll get the groups organised and coordinated and yeah, be fantastic. So it's about, I think it's two hundred and twenty dollars to to do a a module. So yeah, if you can do that, that's over three sessions, and you actually follow it through over the over the season.
10: And something I've heard is that scanning um, can uh, give better returns as well.
11: Well, yeah, definitely because because you get more lambs, and, and you know you know what you're producing, and you can see where your losses are too, so you can improve management in future years, and and maybe work out how to optimise everything, so yeah
2: uranium sheep farmer David Smith speaking to Eliza Burlage, And for more information about the Towards 90 program, you can jump online and go to towards90.com.au It sounds like some good work being done there to uh, reduce the mortality of lambs, which uh, I'm sure people are keen to do, uh, particularly if you are only selling half the lambs, the number of lambs at least, that you were expecting to, uh, based on uh, six months ago, with all those effects on um, the the whether you're going to see your land, whether it was floods or weather or perhaps just that late harvest that also affected uh, that as well. Now we'll uh, head across to the Bureau of Meteorology. It's uh, certainly seeming a lot more uh, autumnal at the moment when uh, it comes to weather. Still pretty clear, but uh, I will be heading to Lucendale on Friday. So uh, hopefully we've got some good weather there to catch up with you while we're there. But uh, Hannah Marsh is with the Weather Bureau today. Good afternoon.
12: Good afternoon.
2: What What's coming up weather-wise?
12: Well, we're in a period of settled conditions at the moment, so we're looking at some uh, dry days, but there is a trough which is producing some uh, higher cloud across uh, it was western parts of the states this morning. It has moved over eastern parts uh, now, and it should continue to clear during the day. Other than that, uh, we're really looking at, yeah, like I mentioned, dry and sunny conditions. It is warm to hot, grading to very hot in the far northwest. And uh, the winds are generally light to moderate, southeast to northeasterly, and fresh at times about the coasts with uh, those afternoon sea breezes. Then tomorrow there's a chance of seeing some isolated fog patches, particularly about the southeast uh, of areas of the state. But again, we're looking at a dry day. It will be partly cloudy in the south, but remaining sunny in the north. And uh, then as we head to Thursday, we've just got a weak front which will clip the southeast of the state. And that'll see some shower activity in the southeast there's just a chance of seeing a spot or two further north about the southern southern agricultural area but not expecting much associated with that little system and uh, then on Friday we've got a trough that we're expecting to develop in the west of the state. The winds will become uh, fresh uh, northerly ahead of it so we're looking at temperatures increasing into Friday and also Saturday as this system moves across the state but at this stage we're not expecting much in the way of rainfall associated with this system.
2: Thanks so much for that Hannah Marsh there from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western is going to be sunny tomorrow. Well, overnight temperatures are getting down to 18 degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching the mid to high 30s. So uh, some pretty typical early autumn temperatures. There lower western again sunny. Overnight down to 15 degrees and the daytime temperatures are going to reach the mid to high 30s. So uh, still rather warm there in the far west of New South Wales. We've got more to come on the Country Hour, including catching up with a winemaker who is keen to head over to Germany for the Pro Wine uh, Exhibition. It's one of the biggest in the world. We'll hear what he makes of uh, the opportunity to head there. But uh, that and more is coming up in the next half hour as we approach 1230
1: You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill,
13: this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff.
2: Hello, it's great to have your company today this is Tuesday. I hope you had a lovely long weekend. Uh, as South Australians... Uh, We're very proud of the wine that's produced in this state. Perhaps you were able to get to a a winery or or catch up with some friends over a glass of wine over the uh, long weekend. Well, now a $26 bottle of Clear Valley Chardonnay has just won the title of Best Drop in the World. It's quite the accolade. I'll tell you a little bit more about it soon. And China is radically ramping up their abalone production through aquaculture. So what does that mean for South Australia's wild-caught abalone?
14: the demand then for the wild product, which is still held in the highest regard, is still strong. And that is really where we have to focus our attention is to ensure that we remain at the the top of the uh, hierarchy.
2: A lot more abalone coming on the market with the this Chinese aquaculture program so I'll have more on that up next but first Matt Coleman has the latest in the news headlines. Good afternoon.
13: Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon the Foreign Minister Penny Wong says the construction of nuclear powered submarines in her home state of South Australia will transform it for decades to come. Under the AUKUS plan Australia will buy at least three American manufactured nuclear submarines and build five new UK design boats featuring US combat technology into the 2050s. Construction of the new ship. Shipyards required to build the AUKUS-class submarines is expected to start this year and will require 4,000 workers. South Korea says the North has fired two short-range ballistic missiles off its east coast this morning. It comes as the South and the US conduct their largest joint military drills in years. Yesterday, North Korea announced that it had test-fired what it called two strategic cruise missiles from a submarine. And the head of the peak body representing retailers says a recent increase in shoplifting is not a surprise. Retailers say shoplifting is on the rise and claim it's hitting them hard as they try to control increased running costs. The CEO of Of the Australian Retailers Association, Paul Zara, says that he's seen this before when the economy had worsened. More news at one o'clock.
2: Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. There now, the chair of the Abalone Council of Australia says he's not worried about this increase in abalone aquaculture in countries like China. Jonas Wolford believes there's still a place for wild caught Australian abalone even though China's aquaculture tonnage has more than doubled in the last few years. Mr Wilford has recently returned from New Zealand, where he attended the International Abalone Symposium, which was held for the first time in five years due to COVID. And he said it was interesting to see an increase in abalone aquaculture since the last time they met.
14: Aquaculture is where the numbers really start to become eye-watering. China itself So five years ago, when the conference was actually held in China, they were looking at around 140,000 tonne. The latest report for 2023 was 217,000 tonne of abalone um, produced via aquaculture in China. The next closest would be Korea at 20,000. Wow. So it's, uh, yeah, the trajectory of aquaculture production has been a, a very much a vertical slope. What does that
15: mean for wild catch abalone here in, in Australia and, and those markets that they would usually sell to, particularly in, in China?
14: That is a very interesting question and one that we thought would mean we would get swamped out of the market as there would be so much aquaculture product available. However, even um, a presentation from China in the marketing space had shown that it had actually worked in our favour for the wild product, where it now made abalone more available to the population. And, you know, we were talking a population of, what, about 1.3 billion people. So I guess 217,000 tonnes, um, once you spread it amongst that, is not a great per capita consumption. So it's made it more affordable and they can access it. And one of the concerns was not only that we could get swamped out, but they would lose their cultural connection with Abalone, because it's one of those things, historically, it's been the food of emperors and one of the treasures of the sea. And the younger generation, now being more exposed to Western cuisine, could forget that and embrace the new. But what seems to have happened is because it's been available, that they've kept that tradition, that cultural tradition alive. So... It has meant that the demand then for the wild product, which is still held in the highest regard, is still strong. And that is really where we have to focus our attention is to ensure that we remain at the the top of the uh, hierarchy, being that that the abalone produced from the wild is the highest quality and the most sought after.
15: Were there many issues this recent uh, Chinese New Year, which is where you know, abalone is, is often uh, eaten and, and a lot of it, were there any issues this year with the, the China-Australia trade tensions or is that essentially with abalone you feel like that that's uh, back on track?
16: Uh,
14: the, the main issue has actually been the policy around COVID and therefore a lot of the bigger banquets um, and events haven't been able to take place. And Chinese and, well, Asian um, in general eat out a lot more than we do in um, Australia in particular because they don't have the the space in their homes and the kitchens and so forth. So that that was where the real impact had been because of the COVID policy. But there still is a a lot of demand for our product. And fortunately, the, the trade issues didn't spill over into the Abalone sector as much as it did our other um, agricultural colleagues
15: at the symposium in, in New Zealand, Jonas Woolford. Uh, were there, what other topics were closely discussed?
14: Some of the main one, and particularly the the shift from five years ago was into the stock enhancement and and reseeding space, where it had always been an interest of ours here in Australia, but it's now become more of a focus and that's where a lot of the research and presentations had been given it is because it's through this conservation reseeding and restocking to try and save some species particularly the abalone on the california coast and even up into canada so their pinto abalone their their white abalone um, and they're even looking at some of their red and green and black abalone um, which have suffered a lot because of climate events and and warm water which has caused issues in their recruitment and then also the habitat. It's um, killed off a lot of the bull kelp. Then they've had urchins move in and the abalone just haven't been able to re-establish themselves. So so they're looking at the the reseeding side of it to try and bring those populations back.
15: Is that something that uh, needs to happen here in Australia?
14: I very much believe that we need to be on the front foot. The reality that we face is that we're going to experience more climate extremes as we see on land because it's it's much more visual. But in the ocean, it's the same thing, and it's the, water, the warm water events. And it has caused issues with recruitment. Um, we've seen that in all of the wild fisheries around the world, including our own in New Zealand. We need to skill ourselves up in this space because I, I see that th- this is the way that we're going to be able to keep a real sustainable population of abalone on, on the reefs and we'll be supplementing. So there'll be some areas that aren't as viable to access and undertake reseeding, and then there'll be some areas that we will continually reseed to make sure that we can carry ourselves through. It's building resilience into the fishery, really, and I think that's going to be the way of the future. But the other thing that stood out was aquaculture, um, particularly in South Africa. They're seeing the reseeding as a way of finishing off their process where they can't grow them out to the size that they would like on land and in the farms so they've been undertaking reseeding to get the the abalone the um Perilamone to a larger size which therefore brings a higher value and separates them from the mass of aquaculture product that's coming out of china and um, south korea
15: and how important is it to get that sustainability right when it comes to these other countries growing with the aquaculture side of things like china that you were talking about before
14: I mean, it's a huge, a huge part of it where we need to now join together the aquaculture and the wild harvest side of it. I know there's been issues in the past, particularly in Victoria, where um, it's speculated that it was, well, it was basically, it did, help, uh, did occur. The abalone viral ganglionuritis ended up from a farm into the wild stock. And has decimated their stocks. It flared up again recently, which caused another uh, mass mortality event. However, the same practices of the farms have improved a great deal, so they've managed to stop that from reoccurring. And it's going to be a continual improvement process as well. Like it's one of those things that just because that issue had been addressed, it's no need to just stop there. They have to keep improving, and then. The stock from the farm we can take with 100% confidence that they are going to be disease free and pest free and put them out on the wild reefs to replenish the stocks and ensure sustainability to produce what is sought after the most by the market.
2: Chair of the Abalone, or Councillor, I should say, of Australia, Jonas Wolford speaking with Brooke Nindorf there about some of the big trends in Abalone. South Australia has a pretty strong Abalone industry and uh, sounds like uh, still, they're still at the fore given that it's still wild court here, but some changes to the way a lot of places are doing it are afoot by the sounds of things. we will keep across that. Now to wine, though. And you'd think $26 bottle of Clear Valley Chardonnay is... Uh, is Probably uh, a pretty good buy suddenly becomes quite a bit better by when you hear that it has just won the title of Best Drop in the World. Taylor's Wine secured the top prize at Germany's prestigious Mundus Vini Grand International Wine Awards after more than 7,500 wines from around the world were tasted by a panel of judges. So it really is quite a coup. Mitchell Taylor, who is the managing director of Taylor's Wine, says the team worked very hard to perfect the bottle.
17: We we're over the moon. It really highlighted all the hard work we've put in to create this wine and this blend, particularly too with some of the you know, difficult conditions that we've had over the last four years within the industry, particularly when it has come to drought. International markets like China have been cut off in the past. So to be recognised on the international stage like this, we really did feel um, quite humble but also uh, really, really excited to celebrate over what, what has been, you know, trying conditions over the last two to three years.
7: $26 is quite a reasonable price for the best wine in the world. How important is it to you to have an affordable price tag on your wines?
17: Yes, it's extremely important for us to have an affordable price point. Because we really do pride ourselves on not only offering high quality wines, but excellent value for money so that most of our customers are able to find them widely distributed and available throughout Australia and in our key export markets. So it has always been an essence of how the business operates. My father always used to say that that we really want to have great table wines that we're able to share with most of our customers.
7: Australian wineries collected a total of 43 gold medals uh, at the global event and all of those were from South Australia. Why is South Australia front and centre on the world's wine stage at the
17: moment? I think it's because South Australia is so important when it comes to production within Australia. We make about 60 to 70% of all Australian wine and it's really our cool climate regions that really have the great quality and distinctiveness. And we have great diversity across South Australia from the deep southeast of Coonawarra all the way up to the high altitude Adelaide Hills to our own Clear Valley, where our family vineyards are from. So I think with great quality and diversity across all these regions, they really have the fruit driven flavors that really are noticed on the world stage.
7: And how is the outlook for vintage this season? How is it shaping up?
17: Yeah, the the outlook for vintage 2023 looks very promising. We've had really good winter rains within our Clare Valley vineyard. We've had nice runoff so there's nice moisture in the subsoil. We had beautiful flowering conditions, so we had very good fruit set. And it's great. I've just been in the vineyard tasting the grapes, and the flavours are certainly starting to come forward. And the actual bunches look beautiful. So we're really looking forward to a very promising uh, uh, vintage here in the Clare Valley. Uh, and also from uh, some of the other regions where we saw some fruit, we're getting some very high quality fruit coming um, across our waybridge.
7: And focusing on exports at the moment and market, how is all that going?
17: Yeah, the, the export markets are starting to show some green shoots. We're seeing some good little opportunities in, in parts of Asia and some of the um, smaller markets there. And we're also getting quite a bit of interest on the quality side in North America, particularly Canada and the USA that are liking our full-bodied Red Wines, they're they're really uh, after our uh, Shiraz's and Cabernet Sauvignons. And we're also opening up some new accounts over in the UK and also Europe. So this particular international award won in Europe will really help us uh, build on that momentum and improve the distribution and the marketing effort as we start to get the word out about the quality of our Australian wine.
2: Managing Director of Taylor's Wines, Mitchell Taylor, speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris, and congratulations. That is a very big win, a feather in your cap there. And uh, speaking of South Australian wine on the world stage, Riverland Wines are going to be showcased this weekend at the world's largest international trade fair for wines and spirits. Yanni Tuzis from 68 Roses is one of five wine producers heading to Provine in Germany. He says he hopes representing the region in Europe will open up new export opportunities to address the red wine glut in particular.
18: Oh, it's an amazing opportunity as a winemaker from the Riverland to showcase our wine to the rest of the world, uh, which is literally what's going to be there this weekend in Germany. So super, super excited.
0: Uh, what are you hoping to achieve out of this? Are you hoping to uh, increase your export opportunities?
18: Absolutely. We're there to you know, increase export opportunities, find distributors, and of course, just I think the most important thing is to really showcase what the Rivland is about, our quality of wine, how diverse we are with our styles of wines. And, you know, just, just to show the rest of the world how good and how fun our wines really, really are. So it's going to be a great opportunity and uh, fingers crossed. I mean, I'm super optimistic that this is going to go really well and, yeah, ready to, um, to go for this.
0: And um, how is vintage this year looking for you? What are your, um, I guess, uh, top varieties for this year?
18: Yeah, good. Look, I'm introducing a little bit of Grenache. Riverland Grenache is nice and fruity at the moment. We'll be crushing some beautiful uh, red steels, uh, this week, uh, a lot people my wife will be um, helping me. And uh, we also got a beautiful uh, surah as well, which is winning gold awards at the moment. Currently, it's being judged in London. So we're hoping for a really good result there um, in the next couple of weeks. That's probably one of our two exciting varieties at the moment.
0: The red wine glut um, that we, I guess, the the Riverland is facing at the moment, how are you, I guess, managing this? Are you still, are you finding ways to, um, you know, get your product out there and reap the, I guess, the rewards of your massive efforts?
18: Yeah, look, I think that's one of the major issues we we are facing in the Riverland and growers are facing at the moment is this, Huge. I mean, this is why I want to travel overseas. I want to find and together with the other Riverland winemakers and Riverland wine, Lindel Row to find opportunities to grow our market to other parts of the world. So it is going to be a difficult one, but people you know, have to really hang in there, try and get as much support as you can in the next year or so. But hopefully, uh, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel going forward with the red wine glad at the moment.
2: Hopefully, it is causing a lot of grief. That was 68 Roses. One producer, Yanni Gattusa, speaking with Sophie Landau. It is 12 minutes to one.
13: On digital and on mobile, ABC South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: growing number of wineries are using a piece of equipment uh, called infield sorting this vintage. Now the units basically what they do is they remove matter other than grape and they're known as mog for short. So so it basically means that just the fruit is being trucked to the winery and all the other vine material, the leaves, twigs things like that are left in the vineyard and Kelly Hollingworth went out to check out this new machine.
0: (laughs) This isn't your average load of Pinot Gris being tipped into a winery crusher. It's a lot cleaner than what's picked with a standard wine grape harvester. This vintage Duxton Vineyards is using five infield grape sorters. Duxton Vineyards Grape and Wine Commercial Manager Tony Allen says it has big benefits at the company's winery just outside Mildura.
19: It increases throughput through the crushers a lot. Uh, there's less waste coming out the end of the, the stemmer, so yeah, it, it makes processing in the winery so much quicker and so much easier, especially for red grapes.
0: Will it have an impact on the wear and tear of the equipment at the winery?
19: Yeah, for sure. So the less uh, mob that you need to remove from the bins, the smoother processing is. So you've also got the risk of putting uh, sticks and materials like that into your bag presses, which can cause damage. So. The mog removers have been fantastic so far. Are
0: you expecting it to improve the quality of the wine as well?
19: We're hoping so. We're doing some trials actually with AWRI this year, with and without the ro- mog removers. So we'll get some analysis done on that and uh, we'll compare that analysis to see whether the, the leaves, the stems, the stalks uh, are contributing to phenolic compounds in the juice. So we'll do a taste assessment on that as well to to compare the different uh, trials.
0: In the Murray Valley, wine grapes are harvested in the cool of the night, and that's when the infield grape sorters are put through their paces. The Chief Viticulturalist at Duxton Vineyards, Chris Nye, is my tour guide.
20: We're looking at Pinot Gris here, so we've got about oh, ten rows to pick, and then we've finished this variety. We're just looking at the mog remover here. It goes through the sorter, separates the leaves from the, uh, the mulch from the uh, grapes throws the, the mog out on the vineyard and leaves the uh, grapes just in the bin.
0: What's prompted Duxton to go down the path of giving
20: equipment like this a try? Oh, it's, it's sustainability. If We bring in probably about anywhere 5 to 7% mog. So if we reduce that and leave on the vineyard, then we don't freight it. We don't have a mog issue at the winery. We can, we can speed up the process of the fruit so that it goes through the crush easier and, 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 and through into tank. So there's, there's a lot of savings. We get more juice because um, we don't have to run the fan anywhere near the speed to take take the mog out. So we, we get uh, you know anywhere probably from, from 30 to, to 60 litres a tonne, we think, from catching uh, that juice instead of spitting it out the fan.
0: This equipment's been used in South Australia for a little while now. Yep. How does the machinery in the Murray Valley differ to what is needed in some of those cooler
20: climate regions. Yeah, well, we used we used it in the um, Barossa a couple of years ago, and, and the big big problem with with not bringing to the the uh, warmer climate areas the bigger crops, higher yieldings was with the capacity they couldn't couldn't actually get that that tonnage of fruit through. So we either had to slow down, which no one wants to do, or develop a, a, another machine that was bigger and it it would take you know this one's meant to do thirty tonnes per hour, so. Uh, initially the ones in the brossi, you know you're looking around five to to ten tonne per hour so they're quite small machines and you can see this one here it almost takes up the whole conveyor
0: the bin that's collecting the grapes is definitely a lot cleaner than i've ever seen it before normally it would be filled with a lot of leaves and other fine material yeah were you shocked at how good a job it does
20: yeah look oh, as i said i've I seen it in the barossa we used it on, on a bin um, a few years ago and it made a real real difference there really? so we so we knew they'd work to this extent I, I wasn't sure but we're finding that once once we've been able to set them up and, and get them and change a few settings like at nightly depending on the pick um it's like setting up a harvester i suppose you've got to set up the mug as well the MOG remover so once we've sort of learned that we've been able to get these results so we're, we're really, wrapped. the winery loves it, and it's really good for us here. You know, we we can we can take or we'll pick probably a little bit with less experience because we can fix it through the mold. So as long as we don't hurt the vine and get all the fruit, we can we can get rid of that excess mold.
2: Chief viticulturist at Duxton Vineyards, Chris Knight, ending that report by killing Hollyworth Sounds like something uh, wineries might actually start to uh, require in coming years if it has that much effect. Finally, today. You've probably heard it's been a rough few years for avocado growers – Just last year, there were those horrible images of avocados being dumped and left to rot because of such a big glut in the market. Well, there's hope on the horizon with the Australian government signing a deal giving Australian Hass avocado growers access to the Indian market. With India poised to become the world's most populous country next year, the deal is hoped from growers that it will end these oversupply issues. John Tyus is the CEO of Avocados Australia and he told Lucy Cooper it could be a game-changer.
21: Yeah, it's very exciting news for for our industry. We've been granted access for Hass avocados to India. So, we need to do uh, 10 trial shipments before that, you know, in place and we can um we can trade. So, we'll be keen over the next couple of months to get those trial shipments in place and then we'll be working through accrediting growers and pack houses around the country to uh, be able to start exporting to India.
16: How long has you know this been under discussion is it related to the free trade agreement with India?
21: No they're really quite separate issues the, the free trade was, uh, last year I think wasn't it and that was very good because you know we knew we were hoping well we're hoping to get access soon and you know those tariff reductions will have a, a massive impact as well on the trade so by 2029, 20, the, the tariffs will be down to zero from from what been 30%. So you can't you can't appreciate those tar- tariff reductions until you've. So now uh, now having access to India, along with the tariff reduction, is just really a game changer.
16: Has India been one of those markets that Avocados Australia has been seeking out for quite? a while? Yeah, look, we have.
21: We, with the Australian government, has been uh, working on access to India for a few years. But I'd have to say that it's gone relatively quickly uh, compared with some negotiations that can take many, many years. We're still trying to get access to Thailand and we've been working on that since 2013. So, you know, they can often take a long time, but this one's been relatively quick. um, And we're really happy that we've got a very commercial uh, and uh, commercially viable and uh, and workable protocol.
16: I think growers will be very interested to hear, you know, what the India market is seeking. Are we going to be sending a premium fruit over or is it run of the mill supermarket heading over there?
21: Oh, well even our run of the mill supermarket product is is pretty good compared to what you see around the world, but really it's a it's a market where we'll be targeting that top end. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people in India, nearly 1.5 billion people. Uh, If we can get 1% of people to buy Australian avocados, that's, you know, that's a market of 15 million people. So we'll definitely be targeting uh, that top end. But, you know, we we produce a a range of of products in terms of sizes and and quality. And, uh, you know, we'll be, our exporters will be exploring whatever opportunities there are in in that region.
16: With a potential glut, another one on the horizon, is this going to help? ease those dumping issues and, and really find a new home for them.
21: Yeah, so our production in Australia has been rapidly increasing for the past few years, and it'll continue to increase simply based on the number of trees that have been planted over the last five to ten years. Uh, and simply, our Australian market won't be able to consume the volume of avocados uh, that are that are coming. And you know, we've known that for a while, and that's why we've, we've been working on trying to open these new markets. Traditionally, our main markets have been Singapore, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, and they've been good good markets for australia but you know they're relatively small compared with the likes of china or india so that's why we're so excited about about this new access because it's access to such a large market an avocado market that is really in its infancy but set to expand rapidly Exponentially, hopefully over the over the coming years. So we think, being such a large market, that's why it'll have such an impact. And uh, and yeah, and we'll continue to pursue uh, other markets as hard as we as hard as we can, because we do have lots of product on its way.
16: I know a lot of growers always think of Japan as the next step in that premium market access, but they have really strict biosecurity protocols, and it's you know we're yet to really tap into it. Where does avocados and biosecurity in India all interconnect together? Yeah, it's
21: a similar thing. All countries have their pests of concern and, and fruit fly is the one that causes us the, the, the most grief. So when, when avocados are harvested, they're, they're harvested in their hard conditions. So they actually don't ripen naturally on the tree. They have to be picked and then they'll ripen off the tree. And when they're in that condition, they're actually not susceptible to fruit fly. So the protocols about you know making sure you're picking fruit that's hard and that it goes through the supply chain and it stays hard and then it's secured uh, either into a shipping container or, or whatever that, that can exclude fruit fly and uh, and off it goes. So it's a relatively simple protocol, and like I say very very workable and will allow a lot of growers and uh, packers uh, around the country to to get involved in uh, in trade with India.
2: Avocados, Australia CEO John Tyre speaking with Lucy Cooper. Hopefully it does ease some of that uh, burden because it certainly was hard on them over the last couple of years, but good for consumers. It's coming up to 1 o'clock. There's more coming up on your ABC local radio as we approach 1 o'clock.
6: Hello, Narelle Graham here. Join me for late afternoons. You'll get a laugh as well as all the latest news and current affairs.
1: Weekdays from 3.30. Narelle Graham on ABC Radio South Australia and Broke.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.